as we come to the Word, we're coming to uh, John 17, what has been called since the 5th century, Cyril of Alexander gave it the name, uh, the High Priestly Prayer, uh, because in this prayer, the Lord makes intercession uh, for His uh, people. And uh, the prayer can be divided into three. Robin, if you just go to the next slide. Um, I've given you a little outline. If you're using a a more modern translation, this is indicated, but there are three parts to the prayer. Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. He prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. And then he prays for all Christians in verses 20 to 26 to the end of the chapter. Now, it's the middle section where Jesus is praying for his disciples, and there's a lot in that. Uh, We looked at the subjects of the prayer, and then we looked at the content of the prayer, what he actually prays for. And he prays for uh, protection in verses 11 to 15, and he prays for their perfection, the disciples' sanctification in verses 16 uh, to 19. Now, it's, it's uh, Roman numeral 2 that we're picking up this morning. I thought I should put that up in case uh, some of the visitors were a little uh, confused, but where he prays for their sanctification. So, it's this middle section where he's praying for the disciples, verses 6 through to 19, uh, and it's that last section when he prays for their perfection. But let's read that middle section where he prays for the disciples. So we'll uh, read from uh, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them." And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, uh, uh, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, this is the section that we're looking at this morning, verse 16. They are not—remember, Jesus is praying for his disciples— They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So, as I said, Jesus prays for his disciples, and he prays for their protection— 
in verses uh, 12, uh, 11 to uh, 15, and then he prays for their perfection in verses 16 to 19, for security and sanctification, for preservation and for purity. Now, in our last study, we looked at that prayer for protection uh, in verses 11 to 15, and now we come to this section where he prays for their perfection, for their sanctification. And I want you to notice four things this morning. First of all, the desire for sanctification. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Jesus prays that his disciples might be sanctified. Now, what did he mean? What was his desire when he asked the Father to sanctify the disciples? The, the word sanctify, sanctification, sanctuary, and indeed saint all come from the same root, which means holy. It means uh, to be separated unto God, uh, to be set aside for God. In the Old Testament, it was used in a number of different ways. For instance, we are told in Genesis 2 and verse 3 that God sanctified the Sabbath day. It was His day. It was set apart from Him. It was a different day. The tabernacle and the temple were sanctuaries because they were set aside for God's use exclusively. Uh, in the uh, tabernacle, in the temple, the bulls, the altar, uh, even the, the priests were uh, sanctified. They were set aside for God. They were for His exclusive use. And if, uh, as a visitor, you came into Israel's camp in the wilderness, uh, you could have um, gone to any tent and stayed in any tent of the Israelites, but not the tabernacle, because that was the tent of God. That was set aside for God. Uh, you could have hired any man in the camp to do a job, but you couldn't hire a priest because they were set aside. They were sanctified for God's work. You could have washed your hands in any bowl, but you couldn't wash your hands in the laver at the tabernacle because that was set aside. That was sanctified for God. You could work any day you liked, but you couldn't work on a Saturday because a Saturday was sanctified for God. It was set aside for God. These things, these days, and these people were made holy or considered to be holy. They were set apart for God. Now, are you beginning to see what the word um, sanctification means and what Jesus is actually desiring for his disciples, that they might be set apart for God's use. Now, in the New Testament, that word sanctification is used in two ways. There is positional sanctification and there is progressive sanctification. Positional sanctification, or what Professor John Murray calls definitive sanctification, is what happens to you when you become a Christian. Uh, you are set aside for God. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, uh, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. 
Now, if you know the letters to the Corinthians in the New Testament, you will know that, those, that, that that church was far from a holy church. It was a church that was marked by division, by worldliness, and indeed by immorality. They weren't holy in that sense, but they had been sanctified. So in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 6 and verse 11, Paul says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Now, they weren't a holy people. They were actually quite unholy. But, but God, in his grace, positionally had sanctified them. He had set them apart for himself. And if you're a Christian this morning, uh, a born-again believer, you have been sanctified. You have been set apart for God. You have been set apart uh, by Him and for Him. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You have been sanctified, set apart for God. That's positional sanctification. But there is also in Scripture what we might call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. This is the gradual process in which God works inwardly and spiritually to transform the believer. You find it in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, where Paul says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that each of you should learn how to control his own body. It's, it's this ongoing process where the believer is actually made holy. Now, that is a, a process that will not be completed until we enter into glory, but it is a progressive, ongoing action on the part of God in the life of every believer where they grow in holiness. If you think of a soldier, it might help. The moment a person joins the army, he is a soldier. He is a signed-up member of Her Majesty's forces. But he then goes into training to become a soldier. He is a soldier, but he becomes a soldier. And when he has finished his training, he is not only a soldier in name, but he is also a soldier in person. Now, that analogy breaks down. Because when God saves us, he doesn't just call us sanctified. He actually begins a work in us. He positionally places us in Christ, and he gives us new inclinations, new desires that spring from a new nature. As Jesus says there in verse 16, they're not of the world. Something had happened to these disciples that had radically altered their position. They had a new nature. They had new inclinations. They were a new creation. They were positionally sanctified. But then that process of sanctification uh, happens where the believer is increasingly transformed into the image of Christ. Progressively, he becomes what he is positionally. Do you see that? Um, positional sanctification, when a believer is converted, he is set apart for God. Progressive sanctification, the believer increasingly becomes what he is, set apart for God. In other words, he becomes more holy. Now, the disciples were not off the world. God had set them apart for himself. That's positional sanctification. 
but now Jesus prays that they might be progressively sanctified, that they might increasingly become what they, they are. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, first Bishop of Liverpool, puts it like this. Grace had done something for the disciples already, called, converted, renewed, and changed them. The great head of the church prays that the work of grace may be carried higher, further, and that his people may be more thoroughly sanctified and made holy in body and soul and spirit, in fact, more like himself. The soldier illustration has its limitations, and I I rack my brains to try and think of a better one. But the only one I could come up with was this. When I I first got a computer, I suppose it was in the the mid-90s. Now, I uh, went to school, and I remember the first computer arriving at school, and it was locked in the store, and you were allowed to peek through the window, but you weren't allowed to touch it or have access to it. So I didn't grow up... um, typing or anything like that. The young people today, they, they, it's just natural for them. They write their assignments and their essays on, on, type them on a computer, and it comes so naturally. But I'm a one-finger man, so I'm S. Now, where's the T? Where's the T? T. Uh, e. E. Where's the E? And um, it takes forever. I tried to write a book one time, and uh, it was never completed because of that particular problem. So, anyway... When I first got the computer, somebody said to me, you know, you can get a, a voice recognition program uh, and you don't have to type at all. You just speak and it'll type up the, the thing for you. I thought, oh, well, that's great. So I, I loaded this up into the computer and something changed in the computer that enabled it to recognize my voice. Positional sanctification. There was something inwardly that changed in the computer that made my voice recognizable. But then the more that I used that program with all my mispronunciation of words like sandwich and poem, uh, the computer then kind of got an ear for that mispronunciation and it became more efficient in responding to my voice. Now, that's progressive sanctification. So when you're converted positionally, something changes in you. That's why if somebody says they're a Christian and they never change and there's no desire for the Bible and there's no desire for for holiness and there's no desire for growth and grace, you have to say, really, was that person ever converted positionally? Were they ever put into Christ? Because when God does a work, He positions you in Christ. There's something that happens to you. But then as you grow in your Christian life, progressively you uh, respond uh, uh, to God's grace. And the greatest compliment that you can uh, ever get when you arrive in heaven is, Hello, Stephen. It's nice to see you. You haven't changed much. Because that work progression in terms of sanctification should be ongoing so that every day we would, should be a bit more like the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to verse 11, you'll notice how Jesus addresses the Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus prays to his Holy Father, and he prays for holy disciples. Holy Father, make holy disciples, sanctify them. Remember that word sanctification as its root means holy. And that's the great 
Matthew Henry says, fundamental law of our religion. Be ye holy, for I am holy. For he is holy, and he desires holiness in his people. Uh, We are to be increasingly transformed as the people of God into what he wants to be. And if Jesus prays for the holiness of uh, his people, surely, surely there ought to be a desire in the heart of his people for holiness. As the writer to the Hebrews says, he ought to, the believer ought to pursue holiness, the desire for holiness. The second thing I want you to uh, notice is the means of sanctification. Jesus not only prays for our sanctification, but he tells us how that sanctification will be brought about. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in uh, the truth. Your word is truth. Now, Jesus makes a very bold statement here. He says that the word of God is truth. And the dictionary defines truth as the quality of being true, genuine, actual, or factual. And in the ancient world, there was this great goal among philosophers to, to, define, to, to, to pursue and define truth. What is, what is truth? And to most, it was an illusionary thing. It was the proverbial pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Truth was something that could never be uh, defined. Nobody knew what truth is. So do you remember when uh, Jesus stood before Pilate on try, trial, he, uh, Pilate says to him, what is truth? My Pilate wasn't picking that uh, statement out at random. He was reflecting the current philosophical thinking of, of his day. Truth is something that cannot be defined, cannot be determined. It's illusionary. It's relative. It's a matter of opinion. And that, of course, is the thinking of our world today. As Oprah Winfrey would say, uh, what is your truth? What is your truth? The truth is a matter of, of what you think and what you believe. But Jesus says, your word is truth. Not only is it truthful, but it's the full embodiment of truth. The word of God is the revelation of God. All that God said uh, says he has communicated to us. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, says Jesus. Jesus had taken the Word of God. He communicated that Word to the disciples, and that Word was truth. Now, that revelation of truth was written down. We have the apostolic Word preserved for us in Scriptures. So, Paul writing to Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, of course, is the last book of the New Testament, written last at least, and he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The NIV uh, translates that all Scripture has been breathed out for God. It's not so much inspiration, but expiration, that, that God has actually breathed out His Word, that His Word comes from His mouth, that it is the infallible Word of God. William Tyndale, the Bible translator, says the Scriptures spring out of God. They are God's revelation to us. And because they are God's revelation to us, they're not only true, they are truth. Your word is truth, says Jesus. Now, notice that the agent in this progressive sanctification is the word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We are made holy by the word of God. 
It is the Scripture that is the embodiment of truth that God uses to bring about this growth in grace, this sanctification. So, Paul writes to the Romans in Romans uh, chapter 12, and I like the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases that. He says, do not um, let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by, by what? By the renewing of your mind, that this transformation, that this um, sanctification takes place by truth, the truth of Scripture entering the intelligence, uh, having an effect upon the intelligence where you gain understanding, it moves from the mind to the heart, and then it's worked out through the fingers. So it follows then that if we neglect the Word of God, we will not be as holy as we, uh, we ought to be. The El Moody wrote in the front of uh, his Bible, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. The Word of God is crucial to our spiritual health, to our spiritual growth, and to our spiritual progress. If you neglect the Word of God, you will not progress in holiness. So, we have got to be disciplined in our reading of the Word of God. Just as we need our daily bread, we need the daily, a daily dose of the Word of God. And, and if, if you lament over the fact that you're not as holy and as godly as you should be, I would say to you, well, are you reading your Bible? Are you studying your Bible? I mean, it's easy to read the, the Bible in a, in a um, sacramental kind of way that you, 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 in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and say, I've done it. I've had my quiet time. That's, that's not the way to read the Scriptures. You need to dig beneath the surface. You need to understand what the Scripture is actually saying so that the Scripture increases your understanding about God and brings you then to increased holiness. You need to be disciplined in your uh, attendance uh, at, the, um, uh, at the means of grace where the Word of God is preached. One of the reasons why I think this might be a personal opinion. One of the reasons why there is not more progress in holiness uh, in the 21st century as there perhaps has been in previous century, uh, centuries is, is the, the neglect of the public preaching of the Word of God. It's my conviction that sermonettes produce Christianettes. Because, because it's the Word of God that is the means of transforming and growing disciples. If you neglect the Word... Now, another thing, it's not just coming to church, because you can come to church, and then when the sermon starts, you can just switch off and let your mind run in 50 different directions. You need to discipline your mind. You need to concentrate your mind. I, I, you need to open the Bible and actually say, well, well, is, is that what the Bible is saying? Is, is what Stephen is actually preaching, and James is actually preaching, is that from Scripture? Can I see it? And when he says, look at verse 5, you look at verse 5. And when he looks, says, look at verse 6, you look at verse 6. But you follow the logic through in your Scripture, because that's the means of Christian growth. Take notes. 
People don't like to take notes. An older pastor told me last week, he says that he thinks taking notes is a distraction. I don't think they're a distraction. I think they are an aid to concentration. And by the very fact that you're engaging not only your mind to, to listen, but to write, actually increases the, the um, potential to memorize what is uh, actually been said, or to remember what has actually been said. The means of sanctification. The desire for sanctification, the means of sanctification, the reason for sanctification. Why is it that Jesus prays for the disciples' sanctification? Well, look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus did not take them out of the world, but he sent them into the world. He, he says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. There is a kind of fundamental evangelicalism that teaches that you have to withdraw from the world and that you have to be isolated from the world and that you can have no association with the world. But Jesus left us in the world to reach the world. He sends us into the world. There's a little girl who uh, once came to her youth pastor and she said, uh, would it be all right if I commit suicide? And he says, why on earth would you want to commit suicide? And she says, well, I was in Bible class this morning and they were talking about heaven and there's no more mourning, crying or pain that he's wiped every tear from um, uh, there are our eyes. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. And best of all, best of all, we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ. She says, I want to be there. And he says, but why do you want to commit suicide? And she says, well, I, I live with a, a parents who are drunks. My mother never gets up to make breakfast, and uh, we have to fend for ourselves. My daddy beats me and abuses me, and I, I just don't want it anymore. I, I want to go to heaven. Uh, Mary wasn't just a theoretical theologian. She was a practical one. She wanted to go to heaven. But the reason you see that God doesn't take us directly to heaven on the moment of conversion is that he has left us uh, a job to do on earth. Mary's job was to win her mom and dad uh, to the Lord, which incidentally she did. God leaves us in this world because he sends us into the world to win the world for him. We mustn't isolate ourselves. Uh, um, I remember saying to, to a man in Bangor, we were having a series of special events in the church in Bangor, and I said to the congregation, I want you to, visit, uh, to, to invite all your non-Christian friends. And he came to me and he said, Stephen, I don't have any non-Christian friends. Don't have any non-Christian friends because I, I believe that I should separate myself from all non-Christians and only fellowship with God's people. Now, we don't become like the world. Uh, we, we don't want to be a church that will drift with uh, the, the world. We want to be a church that will win the world. But how are we going to win the world if we're not in the world? As you have sent me, verse 18, into the world, I have sent them into the world. And our sanctification is fundamental to winning the world. You see, there's something wonderfully attractive about holiness. When a non-Christian sees a moral life, a consistent life, a gentle spirit, a balanced life, an unpolluted heart, he is attracted. 
uh, and willing to listen to that person who is that embodiment of holiness. But on the other hand, if he sees a harsh and hard spirit, a censorious, judgmental spirit, that puts him right off. One commentator tells a story about when in his first pastor, his wife was wanting to supplement her uh, income. So she's joined this program where she would sell weight-watching kind of products. And, uh, but like Tupperware, you know, you would go around the different homes and you would sell them. And she came to him uh, um, one day and she says, I'm not selling any. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I'm just not selling any. And he says, do you want me to be loving or do you want me to be truthful? And she says, be truthful. And he took her and stood her in front of the mirror. And he said, look at yourself. <laughs> you, don't, you don't commend the product. And sometimes, you know, the problem is not the gospel. The gospel is glorious. The gospel is wonderful that a person can be plucked as a brand from the burning uh, under the judgment of God and brought into a relationship with God and, and have access to God and come before the great God of heaven and address him as his father and, and have an eternal home in heaven. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is the salesman. That they don't adorn the gospel. I have um, sat with children of Christian parents and I've asked them directly, why are you not a Christian? And they have said to me, it breaks my heart. And I don't think it's always true because of my mum and dad. They were hard. They were harsh. They were difficult. They didn't live out the gospel in the home. The desire for sanctification, the means of sanctification, the reason for sanctification. And then lastly, I just want you to get this, the, the basis of our sanctification. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 19. And for their sakes I consecrate, now that word is the same word, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Here Jesus tells the Father, that he had sanctified himself for their sanctification. Now, we've got to take sanctification in its widest sense here as being set apart for God. Jesus himself was a holy man. He was without spot and blemish. He was holy and undefiled. He was God manifested in the flesh. He didn't need to develop a holy character because he was a holy character. But when Jesus talks about sanctifying himself, consecrating himself, he's talking about setting himself apart for something. Now, what was it he set himself apart for? What did he do? Well, those opening two words, uh, um, or that opening phrase in verse 9, is crucial to the text. And for their sake I sanctify myself. Now, we miss this in our English translations, but that is the language of substitution. It's the same phrase that's used um, uh, in John 6, I give my life for the life of the world. John 10, verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 1 Corinthians 11, this is my body which is broken for you. 
It's the, the language of substitution. It's the language of atonement. And Jesus is saying that he sanctified himself for the sake of his people. In other words, he, he set himself up aside for the cross, apart uh, for the cross, that he pledged and committed himself to the cross, that in spite of the horrendous suffering and the humiliation and the spiritual dereliction that he experienced on the cross, nevertheless, he sanctified himself for the cross, he committed himself to the cross, that his people might be sanctified. And what a wonderful model and example that is to us, that he set himself aside for the cross, that we might be set aside for him. That just as he denied himself and took up his cross, so we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and, followed, uh, and follow after him. In other words, and I just want you to get this, because this is, is very important, that the basis of our sanctification is the atoning work of Christ on the cross. It's not through self-effort. It's not through self-accomplishment. It's by His blood that we're sanctified. You know, in Eastern religions, you have a lot of religious leaders, and they're and they call themselves holy men. Well, they're not holy men because there's only one way that you can be a holy man or woman or boy or girl, and that is to be positionally put in Christ, knowing that Christ has died to take away your sin, to set you aside for God, and then progressively He works in your life to make you what he has declared you to be. And there's only one way to be sanctified. There's only one way to be brought into a right relationship with God. Be ye holy, for I am holy. The great fundamental uh, law of our religion, there's only one way that we can be made holy, and that's through the death of Christ. We're positionally, we're put into Christ, and progressively he works in our hearts and makes us uh, fit and holy for heaven. And I just want to finish this morning. You know, sometimes we try to put the cart before the horse and we say, you know, I, I must do this, I must do this uh, in order to make myself holy. No, it's, that's not the issue. For by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of uh, God, not by works so that no one can boast. Not by works. So it's, it's by grace, the unmerited favor of God, through faith, trusting in Christ. That's, that's the horse. But we then are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So it's not I need to be holy to please God. I need to trust in Christ. And as I trust in Christ and feel the benefits of his death in my life, then I, I grow in my understanding and I grow in my relationship and the fruits of holiness appear in my life. And there will be no fruit if there's no root and you must be rooted in Christ in order to produce the fruit 
Amen.